Roots and Shoots with Jamie, Charlotte and Steve on ABC Radio Perth and WA. Good morning, Roots and Shoots time. Steve, hello. Good morning Good to morning, you. Good morning, Charlotte. Hi to you and hi, Jamie. G'day. You've come bearing gifts today. Well, yes. I, look, you know, our, our gorgeous Sabrina is not well, like seriously not yeah. well. She's really So really... she was down and out on Wednesday mm-hmm. when she was meant to be here with Jillo. Mm-hmm. She's down and out today. We're thinking of you, Sab. Yeah. Poor and thing. Yeah. She, so that flu has got her mean. So I thought it was a good time to be talking about citrus, you know, like we yeah. should have that whole vitamin C and, you know, trying to keep our immune systems up. As, I mean, once that flu virus hits you, there's nothing you can do about it. But along the path and the lead up to it, citrus in the garden are just such a such a beautiful thing and they're there right when we need them the most, you know, when it's cold and we're vulnerable and... That's interesting, isn't it? Because Nikki brought that up earlier. That's, Nikki Hader yeah. talks oh, nutrition today. with us. Yeah. Yeah. Just talking about how Mother Nature provides you with what you need it's at the time that you need so it. so interesting. Isn't it really it? is. Yeah. And one of my favourite citrus in the garden that tends to get a little bit overlooked at times, and it's a bit maligned, but it's, uh, is the gorgeous tangelo. And a lot of people tend to think that it's too tart, right. too tangy and in its flavour. But this is one of the, in fact... Most of the citrus fall into this category where it's really important to leave them on the tree for as long as you can. Quite often they'll colour up. Mm. And especially with the tangelo, you see this beautiful orange colour come into it. Is it ready? Not if it's tart. Not, yeah. if, it's, not if it's tangy. Do you want to have a taste, Jamie? I heard you... St- Stomach was rumbling. A Did bit you hear that? <laughs> yeah, everybody so heard, loud. has heard your stomach rumbling this morning. Is that an earthquake? <laughs> no, it's just Jamie's really hungry. So you've uh, you've got some whole ones and you've got some wedges here, which yes. I'm going to try a little bit of now. There's actually a bit of an art to, prepa- <laughs> to preparing tangelos because the secret to them when you prepare them is to top mm. and tail them. Cut them at the top, yeah. cut them at the tail, and then slice off down the side. It sounds a bit awkward on radio, I know, but if you muck around with that thought, mm. they peel so easily. Now, is that tart? Not at all. Yeah. It was delicious. It's delicious. Secret sweet. number sweet. two is also Juicy. having a napkin on hand because Jamie just spilt <laughs> tangelo juice all down his chin. And that's a good thing. And that's the other great thing about tangelos. From one piece of fruit, you'll fill half a glass with juice. Mm. So they're a brilliant juicing fruit as well. Yeah. The thing about tangelos is that they are a derivative from tangerines. So tangerines are a cross between an orange and a mandarin. They occur from tangiers. Originally, they originated from, from Morocco. And then the tangerine is being crossed with a grapefruit. Mm. And that's what the tangelo is. So that's why they can tend to be a little tart if they're eaten too early. But a bit of a caution there, grapefruit and tangelos, of course, uh, can have effect on medication. Oh, okay. mm, really? Yeah. Hmm. So what happens is that when when we take certain medications, especially blood pressure and cholesterol medication, but quite a number of others as well, we have enzymes in the small intestine that sort of break down uh, some of these chemicals. Mm. And what happens is that the grapefruit juice and tangelo juice stops the stomach from breaking them down. So more of the medicine enters the system. So it really can be uh, quite dangerous uh, having grapefruit juice in particular 
but p- quite possibly the tangelo because of its grapefruit breeding as well um, while having medication. So there's a little warning. Okay. <laughs> that was just – you know what struck me about that? I haven't eaten too much tangelo in my time. Sure. But I have had that thing where I'm, it's really tart and yes. it's really an abrasive flavour. That wasn't that at all. It was nice and sweet, but it felt like it had more flavour than an orange. Exactly. Mm. It hit me harder. Yeah. So when exactly, when you let these ripen on the tree and the trees at home at the moment are heaving with them, like Mm. I'm talking a couple of hundred fruit per tree. Wowzers. Yeah. And um, I agree. I reckon they've got more flavour and more complexity and then they've got this advantage of being great juices as well. So it's just about leaving them on the tree longer. We've had a a listener call in to say that tangelos are growing really well in Carnarvon at the moment. Is it across the state that it's their time? Yeah, absolutely. Now is a great time for them because you tend to get the Washington navels that come on early mm-hmm. and then the tangelos are really at their prime now. But Carnarvon is such a, oh, it's such a food bowl. What a hot spot mm. for Tucker up there. How much do you love it? Your smile oh. then when you just said the word <laughs> oh, Carnarvon. Oh, the, the, the research that's been going on up there for the last sort of 40 to 50 years with the Ag Department and the work they've done there, and they keep going from strength to strength and introducing all these new varieties. And Carnarvon is where it all happens, mm. and it's really exciting. Food production up there is... Because they can be producing things at this time of year that we need down here. Yeah. And rather than importing them or whatever, you know, we're, they're pretty much locally grown. I mean, Carnarvon's not that far. It's a few hours away and by a truck, you know, eight hours or whatever, and, and the food's here and it's it does a great job of supplying Perth. Thank you, Carnarvon. Uh, just on that one point <laughs> From about, all of us here in Western Australia. Yeah, we appreciate it. Your duty you. is well received. Uh, just when you said a lot of the time we see the fruit, the tangelo, and we pick it early, how do you tell then if it needs a couple more weeks? Do you pick one, bite into it and see how it is? You know, what happens, Jamie, they, they go orange, but then they go another colour again. What yep. is it? Is it tangerine? You know, like... <laughs> it's, 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 another, it's another shade of orange. It's, it's almost sort darker, of goes, isn't it? It is. It's darker. Yep. And, um, and it's when they go that sort of beautiful, rich, dark colour, then, then you know that they're ready. But there's plenty on the tree, have a taste, but, but you know, and if... As I say, if they're a bit tart, leave them for a bit longer. They'll come good. If you've got a tangelo question or a question about anything in your garden for that matter, you can give us a call here at Roots and Shoots. Steve is here to take your questions, one three hundred triple two seven twenty, 720 or text it through. Jamie is on text duty today, 0437 922 720. Hey, Steve, I um, was contacted during the week. So these, this is a question that's got in super, super early. I think it was about Wednesday. I'm from Kalgoorlie, right? Kalgoorlie girl from way back. I've spent a bit of time at the Hannons Club in Kalgoorlie. I'm sure you have, Charlotte. Who's visited Kalgoorlie Mm. or lives in the area will know it well. Me too. (laughs) They're they're having some big issues at the Hannons Club. Okay. Yeah, they're not happy. They've got uh, geraniums growing there and I've got a couple of photos to show you. They're potted. And they've come under attack, right? Yeah. So parrots have been suddenly destroying these beautiful geraniums, dive-bombing them. In Kalgoorlie, Jeff Jones is the local geranium guru, or Geranium Jeff, (laughs) as he's known locally. (laughs) Good. He has worked up, and I was contacted by the club. Jeff has worked tirelessly to establish and maintain these beautiful plants, a bit about Jeff, just awarded an Order of Australia this year. Wow. 
for community volunteer work. Good work. He's uh, written a book about geraniums and he beautifies the streets of Boulder, the Kalgoorlie Boulder Race Club, the cemeteries, all with his flower power. Obviously a man who knows his stuff and we've got him on the phone this morning to tell us about what on earth is going on at the Hannans Club. Jeff, good morning to you. Good morning. Geranium Jeff, that's yeah. quite a title. Yes, 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 yeah, I've heard that. Um, but the problem we have at the moment is the, the 28 parrots and they really, the, the green parrot, it, it's just unbelievably bad. It, 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 the branches that they eat, they drop about five times as much on the ground. They've come, they've been bad at the Kogali Cemetery and then early this week they moved in on the, on the Hannah's Club and... Uh, Yes, so we're looking for suggestions on how we control them. It's a really, really tough one, Jeff, and it's devastating. I'm just looking at a couple of those photos, and basically the street is just littered in those gorgeous geranium flowers. What a, And it's almost like it's a vindictive thing. You know, when these 28s come in, I've seen them sit on all sorts of plants. In particular, uh, also they uh, target the calistamins, the bottle brushes. And they'll just denude a tree of, you know, two or three hundred flowers and just drop them on the ground and then fly off. And it's oh, like, seriously. But it's, um, it's, that's devastating when it's happening to those gorgeous geraniums. I didn't think that they would tackle geraniums. I thought that there would be a, you know, that sort of, um, oh, that taste no, within no, the stem. would be a, a, a beautiful thing to a, eat. A, a sheer delight to them? I think so. I mean, who'd rather have a dry old stick of glistamin uh, <laughs> to a beautiful, juicy geranium. True, oh. but they do have that odour, you know, that sort of uh, fragrance and odour and... and no, no, uh, that's, that's yesterday's stuff. Okay. Today, yeah. Today's geranium doesn't, it, it hasn't got that, uh, that uh, you know, that repulsive smell that you yeah. have. Jeff, things have moved on. Jeff, that, it sounds like you do an amazing job up there in Kalgoorlie and displaying the, the geraniums in the street. And you're absolutely right. Geraniums have been taken to a whole new level in recent years, haven't they? The, the big reds and, you know, some of these beautifully bred varieties. Are they some of the ones that you're using up there? Well, we are, yes, of course, but we're also using... Calliantes. Uh, Have you heard of the Calliantes? Uh, yeah, they're a hybrid, aren't they? Yes, they were released in 2005. Uh, they are very suited to our climate in that they, they, you know, the dry atmosphere of inland Australia, particularly Kalgoorlie, suits them. They, I don't think they do so well in Perth, but and they don't have big pom pom flowers. Uh, but from my point of view, who's been involved in streetscapes, uh, they flower uh, for a long time. There's no good having a plant in the streetscape that's only going to be there flower in springtime. Whereas these Calliantes, they'll flower for eight months a year and they'll flower on the hottest day. 40. I've got some photographs where on a 44-degree day they're in full flower and standing up like little Trojans. That's absolutely amazing. You often see them displayed in, in hanging baskets throughout Europe as well and, and through the United States. They you can hang them up high and they can be exposed to adverse conditions but still put on these beautiful, beautiful displays. So how are we going to look after these geraniums in Kalgoorlie? It's a real tough one. Protect them? It's a real tough one. It only gets nasty.
Yeah. <laughs> one nursery in, in Germany that has uh, a thousand employees on five continents growing geraniums. Wow. And he propagates them in Kenya and uh, flies them out to the, the other, a lot of those people are in distribution, but they just, uh, it's uh, what you're talking about, those cascading geraniums, uh, they are, of course, the most important one that he grows. Mm. But that's what uh, being attacked at the Hannans Club too. They've done well in Kalgoorlie. Jeff, um, they obviously don't mind the cold as well. But do we, uh, going, just going back to the parrot thing, do you find that it's just seasonal? Are they coming through? Will they sort of annoy you for four or five weeks and then disappear, or does it tend yes, to go? This is the first time they've touched the Calliantes. Okay, but they've uh, we've always had you know a, a little bit of trouble with them, but not like this year. And but as you said before. Uh, one day you've got to plant, the next day it's, huh. it's all chewed off on the ground. They really do uh, cause a fair bit of damage. And of course, you, but the, 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 the control is our problem. How do you control them? Yeah, and look, that really is a tough one, Jeff. I, 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 you know, there are no simple solutions. There are some pest deterrent sprays out there. But, you know, there's m- most people that try them. Quite often the feedback is, is, is you know, that they, they, they don't do a lot. Not super effective. Not yeah. super effective. And so really I think it's just something that's seasonal that we've got to let pass, let them come through and pass. Parrots are a bit of a nuisance because they, they learn and then they pass on their learning oh, to right. following generations. Really? Very much so. They're teachers. They are teachers. So if they're attacking your fruit trees or in this case the geraniums, Probably next year it could it could you know get worse, but a bit of netting you know that's about yeah. the best that you can do. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, there's no other immediate solution, Jeff, but let's put it out there to listeners in case someone yeah, might have come across got something. A tip for geranium, Jeff. I'm sure he could use it. Thank you very much for having a chat to us this morning, and uh, shout out to everyone at the Hannans Club in Kalgoorlie. It's a good spot. Let's go to Dennis on the phone who has a question about bananas. Hi, Dennis. Hi. Yes, I've got a problem with two large groups of banana plants that have got to come out. Uh, I've arranged to have the, the trunks and that cut down. Uh, one lot's about 30 or 40 trees, the other one's about 20 to 30 trees. I'm going to be left with the roots. Now, can I spray them with something to stop these roots regrowing? Because bananas are likely to do that yes. until I can get around to getting the roots out. Or can I leave the roots in and will they rot down? It's really interesting, Dennis, because, uh, you know, when the way that bananas are actually commercially produced is that they, a trunk will come up. They'll be up uh, above the ground for about 18 months, producing fruit in that sort of last six months. And at the end of fruit production, the trunk is cut down right down to the ground. And then the suckers, the new suckers that come up, um, are the following year's fruit. Yes. So you, there's, That's my problem. Yes. So there's absolutely no doubt there that you're going to be inundated with, you know, with suckers. It's just part of their nature. Um, look, you can, you know, obviously you could put... Some sort of, you know, I'm always a bit reluctant to recommend glyphosate use, but uh, in this particular case, that would be one of the things that would be effective because they're so succulent in their nature. And the other thing that I'd, you know, recommend would be like a black plastic over it that's weighed down probably with soil around the edges and um, just to use that heat, that sort of solar, solar heating to 
to, to discourage uh, any of the new shoots coming through. And after a season or two, they'll stop doing that. They'll rot off. Right. Well, I'm going to have to get rid of them before that. Yeah. in the centre of a lawn. But I shall have to get somebody eventually to dig the roots out for me. One of the other things you might like to try, Dennis, um, there's a, um, a new product out on the market that uses a pelagonic acid or the actual ingredient on the container is listed as nanolithic acid. But it's from a, it's a pelagonium or geraniums like we we're just talking about mm-hmm. is where it's derived from, and it's not a bad knockdown herbicide, and uh, it's, it's registered organic, so that might be a good option to use in this case. Let's go over to Sally, who's got a black ant problem, which is never a good problem to have. Good morning, Sally. Good morning. Hi, Sally. Hi. Uh, I'm just sitting in my back um, patio and there's all the ants have come up between the paving yes. and the paving starting to subside. Oh, and no. I thought with the rains they would move on. But mind you, it is undercover. Yeah. Uh, but they just seem to keep coming up. I sweep it away and then they come up. And it's been quite a long time and I think I might have finished my relationship with them nearly. <laughs> <laughs> and Sally, you know, that's interesting because you're right that that, that area outside where the soil has become moist, they're moving into where the soil is dry. Right. And underneath the paving is absolutely perfect. So I, what I'd recommend is that you get a liquid wetting agent. Right. And uh, put it into a watering can. In this particular case, uh, you might use it sort of double strength in the okay. watering can. Yep. And then literally go through and water the pavers. Okay. And, yep. And that will you know, penetrate down, and that will definitely thin them out dramatically. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Okay, and keep doing it? If, over yes, repeat it in a fortnight's time and, you know, do it a couple of times and it, it, it will, you know, the more moisture that you can get underneath those bricks, it'll help settle the um, paving a little bit too, And but that'll certainly um, discourage them. Thank you for your call this morning, Sally. We've had a couple of ring, people ring in with uh, some geranium help for Geranium Jeff in Kalgoorlie, who's having all sorts of issues with parrots dive-bombing his beautiful plants. Joan, maybe it's Geranium Joan, called (laughs) to suggest those owls that you can get at the big hardware stores that spin their heads. And she says it works a treat with the parrots at her place. And Anne suggested plastic snakes. Great. You're going to get a bit of a fright if you go to Hannon's <laughs> Club and you're stomping around in the middle of the night and you come across a giant owl with a spinning head and a plastic snake. But Freak me out. Anyway, if that solves the problem, that's what it takes. Thank you, everyone, for your suggestions on geraniums this a few, morning. A few texts coming through as well this morning, Steve. Uh, this one from Jess. I like this because she says, Hi, Steve, I really like you. You make me smile. There you go. Oh, that's nice. That's gorgeous. There's Thank another you. fan. Anyway, she wants to know about uh, pruning a David Austin rose. So she yeah. says that... Uh, she has a David Austin rose and uh, she's only getting a few flowers and she's wondering if she's pruning it wrong. Do you prune it the same as you would another rose varieties or something special that Jess, Jess should be doing? Pretty much. is okay. uh, Yep. So pretty much the same as other varieties. What's really important when you're pruning roses is a lot of people don't prune them hard enough. You get a little nervous. Get a little nervous and you really do need to go in hard. You should be you know, at least dropping the plant size by half. Wowzers. And then whatever's left there, you've got to go in there and thin that right out. Okay. And what you're really looking to leave are the new shoots. Uh, not anything above pen- pencil thickness you need to leave, but what you really want to do is leave things like the red and the green shoots, any of the branches that are a bit aged, um, they come out. 
So you're leaving the new shoots in there or the new stems that are about 18 months old and they're the ones that are going to produce your flowers. So get out any of the wood that's a bit grey or starting to be a bit scaly and flecky, cut that out and just leave those beautiful red and green stems in there and um, that's a great way to go. Best time of year? Best time of year is right now, Do unless it you're now. in heavy frost areas. Okay. But, um, but that's a good system. Okay, go hard, Jess. Uh, another one here that's come from City Beach, June, who's there, who says, G'day, Steve. I'm turning a large 12-year-old chicken run back into a half-flower garden with a veggie patch. Mm. What should I do to prepare the soil, uh, which is pretty sandy and it's compacted at the moment? Yeah, an ex-chicken run is the ideal location. Is it? Oh, yeah, because it's had all those years of that chicken manure going down into the ground. One of the problems with our sandy soils is that when we do enrich them here in in Perth, in particular on the sand plains, is that the organic material disappears down through the sand. Mm -hmm. So we need to close the gaps up in the sand, and we do that with a fine clay. So we've got our kaolinite clays, our bentonite clays, they're quite granular. They're very easy to use in the garden. We apply them about one to two kilos per square metre. We sprinkle them over the soil and then dig them in. Then when we add organic material, it turns the soil into a loam because loam is mainly sand with a mixture of clay and organic material. So we turn them into these loams. It changes the structure for the life of the soil. Now we've got something awesome to grow, especially when you're talking about growing food, vegetables in particular. So in this particular case, I'd just recommend the addition of some um, garden clay, available at all the garden centres, and uh, and that's a great way to go, and also a bit of organic material. Big question is, what happened to those chooks? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. A little bit of winter soup, I reckon. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, just uh, one quick, I want to get this in, uh, who says... Uh, this is from Alex, uh, who's 10. Hey, Alex, uh, am I allowed to plant my potatoes in the same spot as I did last year? You can, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, look, it is always good to mix things around. Right. And with potatoes in particular, you've got to really go through and refresh the soil. So you've start, you know, you want to go through and put in plenty of that sort of palletized chicken manure, the blood and bones, and refreshen it right up because they take a lot of goodness out. But by all means, you can plant, you know, plant them back in. I love the way that question was worded by a 10-year-old. Am I allowed to? Yeah. <laughs> yes, Alex, you are allowed. <laughs> Just funny. this once, Alex. I like it. Thank you very much for your text, Alex. Elsie uh, in Bustleton has been... Oh, we might have lost Elsie. We might have left her waiting a little bit too long. Okay. Um, if you need have a question for Steve Wood this morning, one three hundred triple two seven twenty is the number, or you can shoot a text through zero four three seven nine double two seven twenty. Elsie, we are ready for you if you'd like to call back. Uh, a few more texts coming through while we wait for Elsie and uh, anyone else who needs some help this morning. Uh, this one here, um, a text saying they need help with their palm. It's not going as well as it used to. Um, it used to have a very good spread of fonds. Yep, fonds, yeah. yep. Sorry, and uh, it's now looking not so great. I won't use the word that the texter did. Uh, yeah, what can we do to help out a palm? That's not the way it used to be. I wonder if it's sort of been in a fairly protected area during its earlier stages and now it's got a bit of height and been exposed to more easterly winds, dry winds, that type of thing. You know what, you've nailed that because a photo's just come through later that I didn't see on the first run and you can see it's kind of 
coming out very high now from before where it looked like it might have been under a bit of protection with a roof. So it's mm. kind of spread its wings, so to speak. Getting a bit exposed. Yeah. The good news about that is most varieties of palms will tend to acclimatise. Right. But once they get out into the sun and exposed to the wind, it might take two to three years. But they do come good and then the, and they adjust to that those extreme conditions and, yeah, they seem to sort of toughen themselves up and, and uh, that you know, within three years or so, they're looking great again. Just a bit of time. Bit of time. Okay. Elsie is back. Thank you for waiting for us, Elsie. Good morning. Good morning. I just have a quick question. Um, my daughter has a lovely ring of lavender around a big peppermint tree. She pruned them seriously and one has grown back bearing triple heads. Oh. Is this common or is, is it unusual? The bush is absolutely covered with these three-headed lavenders that look like little Trojan forks. Wow. <laughs> oh, Elsie, that's, that's actually quite fascinating because mm. it's, um, it's almost like a virus that, that gets in and, and affects them and causes that mutation where you get right. multiple heads. In saying that, sometimes as long as that how the virus is affecting the plant and in this way uh, it's positive and as long as it's not deforming the foliage sometimes no it's that, absolutely beautiful to look at yeah well that's mm. that can often be how new mm. varieties are selected so if that was in a, a commercial production area and they saw that happening um then you know you take cuttings of that and then sort of grow it on for another one or two seasons and that's something that would often be released further down the track as lavender elsie (laughs) (laughs) thank you you very much thank you very much sounds specky so keep an eye on it by all means thank you for your call elsie uh we have june on the line. Oh, it's a, it's a geranium question, June. It's been the theme of the day. Uh, yes. Well, um, hi, Steve. Hi, I was delighted to meet you a couple of years ago at the garden show. I was with your friend, Joe Pepper. Oh, gorgeous. Thanks, and, June. And uh, Joe and I have discovered that, um, well, I discovered by accident and then somebody told me they used it. I had the, um, uh, the ring-neck parrots eating my red rosebuds. Yes. They were very vociferous. And, uh, yes, I sprayed neem oil on them and they won't go near it. Oh, I love that tip. I love that tip. And so anything I, ha- I find is being bombarded by the little beggars. I use um, a diluted spray of neem oil. Great, June. Well... That's a lovely bit of advice. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you, June. The it's the best part about this show. We mm-hmm. get information from everywhere. Hey, Steve, a question from Pip and Jono in Mosman Park this morning. Their buxus is growing quite yellow, ready. Yes. The new growth is green, but eventually will turn. They've got another hedge in the shade that's nothing like it. So they're assuming that the sun is the problem. Is there anything special they can feed it to help? They're hoping for a glossy green hedge one day. And we've got a photograph of... Oh, yeah, it really has. Okay, so what's happened is that it really has gone, got very, very hungry. Oh, it's hungry. Yeah. So that is, they're really struggling for nitrogen. Typically, it looks like a Japanese box. Typically, that buxus is growing in quite rich, you know, they're, once again, from Japan, organic, um, really clay, quite heavy, loamy sort of soils. So in sandy soils, they chirp the nutrition really quick. The solution to that is to buy a coated slow-release fertiliser. 
plenty of different varieties out there on the market. But to go for something that's got about an eight to nine month release rate and be generous when applying it because these coated fertilisers only release nutrition into the soil as this plant requires it or as the soil is lacking in it. Yeah. So you can't over-fertilise with them. And in fact, it's the way all commercial nurserymen grow plants. They grow them in soilless mediums that are clean and disease and weed-free. But slow-release fertiliser is what provides the nutrition. So use that the professional trick, in particular in this location, but certainly in any gardens. Slow-release fertiliser is a lot more expensive than traditional fast-release fertiliser because they've got this um, really unique polymer coating around each each sort of prill. Mm-hmm. But trust me, it's really worth it and the results are outstanding, especially in our sandy soils. There you go, Pip and Jono. It's going to cost you, but... Um, it's worth it. ...problem will be solved. Now, we've got people lining up to speak to you, Steve, so we'd better get back okay. to the phone lines. Uh, we have Michael on the line. Hi, Michael. Um, hi, um, I've got a problem with the scales uh, on the indoor, uh, indoor plants and outdoor plants. They just got onto it. I've been repeatedly every two weeks spraying with white oil with pyrethrum added to it. And the, all the leaves, they turn yellow and they die back. And, yeah. Um, uh, what to do? It's a tough one, Michael, because you're the... If you put too much white oil, especially on some of these indoor plants that are quite tender, then they it tends to sort of set the plant backwards. So it, depending on how sort of prolific the scale is and, and sometimes it can be merely bug that gets on them, especially um, indoor plants as well, often it's um, you can treat them with the cotton wool bud and a little bit of methylated spirits and just sort of dab each individual insect. Another thing with scale... Bugs are such they just uh, leaves are curling and dying. Right. It sounds yeah. That it sounds like. Um, see, the scale tends to sit on the stem and like and little insect that doesn't move and sucks that goodness out. Yeah. One of the things with them is that when you do spray them, quite often they will suffocate, but they can stay on the plant and they look like they aren't dead. So you tend to go back and give them more applications when they don't actually need it and that can, that can pull the plant backwards. As far as the, the um, leaves uh, curling and being damaged, that's more of a feeding insect, something like aphids or thrip that would be uh-huh. in there and they're sort of causing the, the leaf to, um, well, well, to malform. Uh, by that term to it as well. Yes, yes, yes. Well, normally that normally that should sort of take it out. So what I'd do, I'd mo- definitely move the plants outside to where there's uh, plenty of air, plenty of light, and, um, uh, you know, r- try that once again. The You know, the pyrethrum should do the job well. And... Um, Look, just give them a light liquid feed and plenty of fresh air and some maybe some morning light, but definitely protection from the afternoon sun. Good on you, Michael. Thank you. I hope that that is helpful. Jane has been waiting very patiently on the line as well. Hi, Jane. Hello. How are you? How are you? We're Great. all well. Thanks, What's Jane. your question for Steve this morning, Jane? Steve, I have um, exoras down the west side of my house. You're a brave and lady, Jane. <laughs> why? <laughs> They're, they're so gorgeous, Ixoras, but they yeah. can be tough to grow. Well, I had no problem growing them. They've been great up until probably about this year. And now they've sort of um, I've got yellow leaves and the leaves are then falling off and I'm 
that the new ones that don't seem to be forming properly and the stems are very black. Yes. They, this is this is part of the problem with them. They they just they seem to sulk and turn, you know, t- not turn up their toes, but sort of like you know, go off. At, oh, great! And um, <laughs> which is so frustrating. One of the things, yeah. Jane, when you tend to look at them when they're doing this, it the problem is in the root system, and uh-huh. the roots sort of start to rot uh, for whatever reason. You know, a fungus can get in, a disease can get in, the soil can. The excess moisture at this time of year can trigger it off as well. So probably the the best thing that you can do is um, is the phosphoric acid treatment. So okay. phosphorus acid, um, it's an anti rot type of product that you'll see on the shelf. It's it's really you know very very low toxicity and uh, so a good one to use in the home garden. Mix it into a watering can and as you drench the the root system with it. Do it. Let let it fall on the foliage. So the foliage will take up a certain amount of the phosphorus acid as well. But okay. You're sort of trying to get it down into the root system, but by all means, treat the foliage and stems as well. Yeah, because I sprayed them with echo oil. Yes. But that, yeah, that doesn't seem to have done much good n- yet. No, no, it won't. Mm, so, okay. But this will. They will look a bit extra sulky over winter, but sort of come spring, hopefully that's when they'll perk up. We're all a bit sulky over winter, <laughs> Steve. That's all right. That's, that's all right. Uh, let's go to Alison. Hi, Alison. Good morning. Um, hi. Look, I have a question about um, worms. Yeah. Um, I, I've got lots of worms in my compost, but I'm a bit worried about putting them out because I feel like it's too cold. Oh, you're... Very kind, Alison. <laughs> Do you know what? The worms love this time of year. So they don't get that sulky because they love the moisture. And also what tends to be happening with the amount of moisture that's around at the moment, we get a lot of organic material, a lot of the leaves really tend to break down. They haven't got the warmth, but they have got the moisture and that's a, that's a great thing. So don't be, don't be worried. They, they will enjoy getting out there and they'll really establish themselves at this time of year. So by all means, get them into the garden. Okay, so should, when I put them in the garden, should I add anything... To the soil. One of the things I love doing if when we're putting, doing that, moving worms from the worm farm into the garden is to put some um, uh, mulch over the surface. So around about a centimetre to two centimetres of a good coarse mulch, something like a street pruning mulch or a coarse pine bark mulch is a really good way to go. It just protects the worms. The moisture still gets down and the air gets down. Um, and uh, but it gives the worms lots of protection, and they can tunnel down, and they're safe from birds and other prey. And so, don't gets be them afraid to, to don't be afraid to send the worms out into the cold, but give them their little winter blanket. Oh yes, there you That's go. They're a bit of insulation. Nice. Oh, I, I can make gardening <laughs> just so cute. <laughs> totally can. Yeah, totally. There you go. Uh, Can I go to Jack? He's got a good question on the text. Uh, He says he wants to know about figs and how they go in pots compared to when they're in the ground for fruit yield and nutrients and water requirements. So he wants to put them into 1,000-litre chemical drums but cut those in half so they'd be about 50 centimetres deep. Would he lose any yield if he does that? And what about the water? The big secret is the variety of fig that you use. Okay, so is there one that's better? There really is. And the one that performs best in large, because that is a large container, so that's great. Mm. Um, But the best one by far is the black Genoa. 
So the, a lot of the white figs, um, they tend to be way, way, way too vigorous. Whereas the black Genoa, it's got um, tighter internodal um, spacing. It, it's more compact in its growth. It's more manageable. And it seems to produce very well in a half wine barrel you'll get a beautiful crop. Okay. Uh, another one here. Uh, good morning. A very kind neighbour has given me a very well-established frangipani tree in a pot, which I'll transfer to the garden, but its leaves are looking very yellow. Is that just the time of year or do I need to add some compost, some sheep manure, a bit more love when I plant it? It really is just the time of year. Okay. So depending on sort of how more inland, how close to the coast you are, they'll get you know, the leaves will go a bit black spots on them. They'll drop their leaves. And so they really are semi-deciduous at this time of year, especially the cooler it is, the colder they're exposed to. You can overlove them a bit too, can't you? Especially with water and stuff like that at the sure. moment. Sure. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, just one more, uh, passion fruit. This is from Heidi in Mosman Park. Uh, I have a one-year-old passion fruit that's been going gangbusters, but now some of the leaves are developing white spots, but otherwise it's looking pretty healthy. Should I be concerned at all? It's probably, once again, a little bit more weather-related. They really are a semi-tropical, subtropical type type of fruit. Right. But um, in about four or five weeks, good time to give them a prune. So all passion fruit really need to be a pruned at least once a year. Um, right at the beginning of the spring is the time to do it and reduce that sort of foliage back by about a third, even on one that's a year old. Okay. Bring it back by a third or encourage it to bush out and put out lots of new growth. Put it in the diary, Heidi, four to five <laughs> weeks' time. It's yours. Let's go back to the phones. We've got Helen on the line with a guava question. Hi, Helen. Hello. I've um, got a, I had a problem for several months. I waited to see if the cold had any effect on them. The, um, I believe it's called the dimpling bug, but it's a little fly, very minuscule, very compact, very smart and black and yellow. And it, there's a typical dimpling of the, of the guavas after it has laid its eggs in them, I gather. Mm. Um, it's a menace. It is, that is a real nuisance, Helen. And the, the guavas in, especially in, in, sort of a, a Perth-type climate or if... We're, I'm in Bunbury. Okay, yeah. Well, I was going to say Perth or South <laughs> mm-hmm. because what happens with the guavas, they do really well north and mm. uh, certainly that sort of, once again, they're a semi-tropical type of plant. And the the worst part about it is that the guavas are late fruiters in the season. So the fruit tends to still be on the edge of maturing coming into this colder winter weather. Whereas traditionally, they'd be in a warmer climate, you know, another five degrees uh, warmer at night, that type of thing. And they get very susceptible to different insects and bugs and and all that because of that. That fruit's just sitting there. It's delicious. There's not much else for the flies around. There's something that will also harbour the Mediterranean fruit fly and uh, carry it through that sort of winter period. So yeah, it's ju- it's a nuisance. There's not anything that I can really recommend to treat that. In the past, we've had uh, different fruit fly sprays like Labasid, which is active ingredients, Fenthian, but that's now being taken off the market. So um, look, Helen, there's, apart from netting it with a, um, a very fine mesh uh, anti-fruit fly net, which is probably not a bad way to go because guavas are a manageable size and a manageable height. So if you really want to keep that fruit, that a net is probably the best and only way to do that. I can, um, 
I can have a try with a net. It, it would have to be very, very small. Um, they are the tiniest little flies. Yes. Well, and you... um, and mm. I've been uh, picking picking the fruit and bringing it in and putting it in a container, spraying it with surface spray, covering it, and then um, burying it, and I'm hoping that the at um, will get rid of the ones in that fruit. Yeah, and Helen, you're probably almost better off putting it into the rubbish or into a sealed bag um, because they, you know, quite often they can be, they can harbour them and the life cycle can continue in the soil if the, if the household spray hasn't taken them out. But you're doing the best you can. But I'd put them in a plastic bag probably and tie it up and in the rubbish and that's, that's a good way to go. Thank you very much for your call, Helen, and good luck with that, although it sounds it's a tough one. tricky. Uh, Tim is on the line. Hi, Tim. Hello, how are you? How's you, Steve? Tim, I'm excellent. Used to I work... used to work for you down at Woods Cottage. One January <laughs> you gave me my first job. Uh, about, I don't know if it was 89 or 90. One of the things I remember um... was that we were in your potting shed. Yes. And Matika came on the radio with I feel the earth move under my feet and the actual earthquake happened. I think it was from Meckery. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was with someone else in the shed. I can't remember who it was. That um, is radical. I look, yeah. Tim. I... <laughs> Tales from Steve's yeah, yeah, shed. yeah. The potting shed <laughs> that could have got that really could have gone anywhere know, for a moment there, couldn't it? Yeah, we, we, we did have our finger on the button then. <laughs> uh, Tim, well, lovely to hear from you, mate. Are you working? Are you, what area are you working in these days? Oh. I'm teaching now. I was working. Uh, I was. I got my certificate in horticulture, and then I went on to do an apprenticeship in turf management, and then went into bush regeneration. And wow! Now I'm teaching little ones uh, pro- uh, primary school. Good work, mate. That is awesome. L- yeah. Beautiful stuff. Lovely to hear from you, Tim. No worries. Um, Guildford grass. Yes. Just how deep would you dig to get it out? So I'm thinking of. Uh, ripping up my front lawn because it's covered in Guildford grass and getting like a bobcat in or something to um, take the surface off and then relay the grass. Yes. How how deep do you think to get, I know you won't get all of it, but a majority of it out. I know it's a pretty it's a pretty serious gig, but Tim, you'd be looking at uh, taking out a good twenty to twenty five centimeters. Yeah. So right. it's a fair bit of dirt. Yeah. Now, if you if you go to one of the farm shops, um, you know, one of the places uh, that specialise in, you know, farming chemical supplies. Yep. They will be able to sell you a product that will take out Guildford grass. Okay, so it might be worth looking at that because the, what you, you're talking about a product that for a, it's around one hundred and twenty dollars per litre, yep. but it will do the job for you. So I'd be inclined to to consider that because um, the cost of removing that and bringing in new soil and you know it could it'd be a much more economical way to go. Yeah, no worries. So I'll, I'll head off to Elders today and have a look. <laughs> All right. Good luck, mate. Good on no you, worries. Cheers. Team. Thank yeah. you. Try and take the easy road before you take the mm, really, it's... really difficult one. Uh, Hayden is on the line and has a frangipani he wants to get rid of. Hi, Hayden. G'day. How are you? Good, Hayden. You d- d- don't talk too loud. You'll be inundated. <laughs> you yeah, know... I've, I've, I've got a, uh, on the western side, I've got a little urn, uh, Mandra. And um, I've got an area out the back, but there's nothing will grow there. Yeah. 
want to um, plan something in the front. I want to get rid of this frangipani. Okay. Mainly keeping it because it keeps the sun off the bedroom window, but I'm getting a blind put there. Ah. Well, Hayden, you know, the, the thing about frangipanis is that they really are a rather expensive plant, you know, because they're sort of fairly slow growing to get them to a decent size. The other great thing about them is that they transplant so easily. So there's, they're one of these plants that if you cut it and place the, cu- place the plant out onto the verge with a little sign on it that says free, you, it won't last, won't last an hour out there, quite likely, depending on the number of cars coming past because they really are very valuable. And um, even though this is not the type of time of year to be taking frangipani cuttings or transplanting them, they will survive. There's no doubt about that. And, um, yeah, so I'd be inclined to do that, mate. It'll disappear pretty quick. Well, it, but um, if I pull it out of the garden, Will the roots reshoot and all that stuff? No, they won't. They've got a very, very small root system attached to them. Most of their nutrients and moisture is stored in the stem. So you'll be quite shocked. It'll be only be about 30 centimetres in diameter, the root system, mm. even on a really large tree. So it's it's always a, you know, it, it always staggers people when they, they see the non-existent root system of a frangipani. Yeah, once it's gone, it's, it's gone. gone. Freaked me out. I had someone give me one. Mm. Uh, they were doing some work on a house and the house next door was being bulldozed and the owner said, oh, I don't want that tree. So a mate of mine took two, gave me one, and when he brought it over, I thought, where are the roots? Like, yeah. have you just chopped them off? Have you given me half the tree? But no, it took no. well. Yeah, it's quite incredible. And it, that's right. And you think, you look at it and go, there's no way it's going to survive. No. It's got this, you know, little handful of roots on this massive structure and Sure enough, they're fine. Yeah, it does yeah. its best work above ground. Not about <laughs> it does. size, guys. It's what you do with it. So there you go. Hey, Megan, let's let's go to Megan. Hi, good morning. Hi, Megan. Oh, hello, Megan. Hello. Ha- um, ha- yes, I I have I have a dwarf. No, not dwarfed. Hybridised red flowering gum. Beautiful. Yes. I have two of them actually. And they're, and they're growing well, but the latest one has got a bulge around the base of it and then it comes straight up. It comes in and goes straight up like a bit like a umbrella in a, in a pot, yes. but, um, a big flowering pot. Is that all right? Doesn't make yeah, it, it does sound like it's been, it's had some insect attack at, on the stem there that's caused that reaction, Megan. Oh. And, um, but the fact that if it's still strong in its growth and it's yep. looking okay, then it sounds like it's turned the corner, you know, it's got grown through that. Oh, and that's just sort of a bit of scarring or, you know, that's been left behind from, from that sort of insect yeah. attack. Oh. That's likely, you know, what, what has happened in that particular case. I see then. Thank you very much yeah, indeed. Beautiful Thank choice you, of Megan. tree. Yeah. Oh, they're stunning. I love the... These hybridised new red flowering gums that are out there, quite often they're grafted, but they're... I think they're one of our most special trees. They're a West Australian native. They occur down in Walpole at Two People's Bay there. That's where they naturally occur. And when you drive over the sand dunes in in summer, when they're in full flower, Mm. there's this beautiful grove of them down there occurring naturally. And the colours range from oranges through to dark crimson reds. Oh, wow. Beautiful. And all the same tree. Mm. But Why do some have a different colour to others? Because when you grow a plant from a seedling, 
the genetic structure has got the it, it sort of changes from seedling to seedling just ever so slightly. Yeah. So that's why a lot of them they'll choose the the crimson coloured one, let's say, and graft that on to a rootstock so that you're guaranteed of that colour to come through in the red flowering gum. Right. But otherwise you can have ten red flowering gums and they'll all have a slight shade difference in their colouring. That's cool. Yeah, they're they're stunning plants. How do they go away from the cold? No, they they do very well Still throughout well. most of the most of the state. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I might squeeze in this text from Sonia because she's gone to the trouble of taking some rather nice photos. Uh, she needs some help with her native grevillea uh, with new growth. It's all coming up as yellow, and she says, "What can I place on it that won't kill the plant? What feed does it need? It's already had a slow release native fertilizer on it, but I've got to admit the soil's pretty sandy. Can you yeah. help me? So by adding a little bit of organic material into the soil, so a little bit of compost, nothing with too much animal manure in because they're vulnerable to excess phosphorus that can kill them. So uh, just a, a well-composted uh, uh, compost that's aged, let's say, but with not too much animal manure, and then to follow that up with some liquid trace elements and that will bring that bring them back to a lovely dark green. Okay, at a minute to 10, uh, let's get this in from Marion who's in Albany. Uh, she has uh, some Japanese box hedges. Uh, have a slow release fertilizer, top dressed with new soil, also sprayed them with trace elements, but it's really patchy. And you can see a couple of the photos here. You can see that patch coming through. Some of those leaves are pretty yellow and looking rather ordinary. They do. So in that particular case, they do need to be beefed up a little bit more slow release. So double the rate that's on them mm -hmm. and that'll pick them up. One of the things with Japanese box is that they have got a tendency to go yellow in the cooler weather. So... It's one of the things they get the darker green as soon as it starts to hit spring. And there is one form out there called winter gem that doesn't tend to do that, but it's pretty few and far between. There's not a lot of it around. So, But the traditional Normus buxus japonica, which this one is, um, does go a bit yellow naturally during winter as well and then grows out of it. That just about wraps up Roots and Shoots for today. We've had plenty of help from you this morning. I just want to get this in. Eileen called regarding that problem with the little flies on the guava yeah. fruit. She said, put it in a plastic bag and then fry them in the sun. Works a treat. Oh, good tip. So that's pretty extreme, but thank you very much for that, Eileen. Thank you, everyone, <laughs> for your help for Geranium Jeff in Kalgoorlie as well. I'm sure he appreciates that. Steve, it has been so lovely having you in. Oh, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure, Charlotte. Thank you. Have a good weekend.